Hello, welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam. Happy Friday. I hope you are doing very well. I am doing great. You know what? I am so excited for season six. I have to calm down and tell you a little bit more about it later on. But we are getting excited at I Am The Code. You have no idea. Please reach out to our team. You know, if you love the podcast, please share the episodes. All you need to do is just go on your social media, your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, and just click any episode you love and share them with your friends. It doesn't take long. If there's a young woman right now looking to get into the data industry, you have to share the podcast of Edwina Dunn. She needs to know Edwina Dunn. If you have any wisdom, in companies where diversity, inclusion is being created, you have to speak to Aisatu Jabate. She's based in Toronto in Canada. She is absolutely awesome lady. What I'm trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, is that we are always in class at I Am The Code. We are all seeking a meaningful life. So if you have anyone giving you free content, their wisdom, their love, their compassion, their kindness, please take it, learn, write it down, put it on your diary, put it on your phone. Improve yourself. The only way you can do good in life is by constantly, every single day, improving yourself. I do this every day. I am in class every day. I'm just like every single day, I'm learning something new. I spend time and hours reading books, learning from my peers, listening to podcasts, listening to other people because, you know, people have views and they can teach you something. I'm a woman on a mission and my goal is to reach you, to reach every single young girl growing up across the world. By 2030, we will teach 1 million women and girls to learn how to code. I know I can do this, really. And that's why each time you support I Am The Code, you are elevating young women and girls globally. I really do mean this is true. Girls in refugee camps, girls in slums, girls in favelas. Sometimes we're in our own bubbles. We think everyone is the same. No, everyone is not the same. Right now, while I'm speaking to you, over 800 million girls didn't go to school because of COVID-19. 18 million refugees across the world don't have passport. They're homeless. Women are being sexually violated, trafficked. The suffering across the world is massive, it's huge. But you can do something about this. When, for example, you listen to people on the podcast who are talking about food security, leadership, empathy, compassion, kindness. Those are the values we need right now to advance the sustainable development goals, but also advance us as a humanity, as people living on this earth. Thank you for your love, your compassion, your kindness. It does mean so much to me. I've learned so much during season five. I hope you have learned as well. And I really hope that all my guests have taught you something. You know, January has been hard for many of us. It's been a weird month, but let's look forward and be grateful for what we have. Don't worry about what you don't have yet. It will come. Time is relative. 
you have to work hard. I worked extremely hard to be where I am today. My guest this week knows all about working hard. She doesn't need any introduction. She is an awesome lady, a pioneer in what she does. Knowledgeable, kind, compassionate. She's a mama of design. Joanna Pena Bickley. She's the head of research for the Alexa devices at Amazon. I got to know Joanna a few years ago and just felt in love with her. She is my sister. She's super knowledgeable, really. And she told me that she's always on better. If you don't know the term, I'm always on better, it means that she's always improving herself, which is really amazing. Anyway, we were in class with Joanna. I learned so much from her. I just love her. I love spending time with her. And I hope you get to know her because she's really awesome. She got an amazing foundation helping world designers, people who really care about design. You cannot make it in this world if you don't understand design. Because for me, I love design with empathy. Everything we do is design. From cooking an omelette to putting it on a plate is design. We design policies for people. We design code, websites, apps. I'm constantly designing things. The design of this podcast meaning that I want to make sure that I invite people on the podcast who can teach you something. So don't hesitate to learn about design. Enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. I am so happy to be here. But you know what? We couldn't close season five without inviting my beautiful friend and guest. She is so amazing. Really, really beautiful, knowledgeable, powerful, kind and compassionate. I will go through what she has done for I Am The Code and Our Girls in Africa. But before we start, let me say welcome to my guest. Joanna, how are you? I am so good. I couldn't be more honored to be here with you today, Mariam. You know, you are somebody I really love and admire. I always say to my guests why I invited them on the podcast. And I was actually holding your spot. Closing our seasons is all very dramatic. Everybody's like sad, but we want you to close it. So you know, let me tell you why I invited you. I think you and I got connected with a dear friend of us. And after we got connected, you were so kind to me. I remember you calling me, you know, really supporting I Am The Code. Even sending gift to our girls. COVID-19 started then. Many people didn't do well for the world. Everybody was closing their doors. But you sent uh, some shipment to Africa, to our girls, some sewing machines, amazing things. And I didn't even know you then, but you just stepped out and did a wonderful work with your team. And I think the second thing I really love about you is your humanity, you know, your kindness, and you just don't give up. And you've been through so much during COVID, but you just didn't forget people. You are always doing what is right for boys and girls, for people of color. And on behalf of I Am The Code, we appreciate you. And I want to say thank you so much, Joanna, for coming on the I Am The Code podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Let me just start by saying that you know that you are my sister right? That I consider you as one of my sisters from, uh, you just are, you happen to be just a little further away than I really want you to. If I could be traveling to London and to Kakuma, I would be there with all of the girls in you because I fundamentally believe not only in what you're doing, not because it's just the right thing to do. You are planting seeds for the future. And for me, I have always been about planting seeds for the future. And we live in such a complex time, the clarity 
the path and the inspiration that you were offering the girls. I know it inspires the girls, but it was inspiring to me. And that's where we really thought about when we talk about partnership, it's much more about sisterhood and that sisterhood needed to act because I knew all of you were in need. And when somebody is in need, what do you do with a sister in need? You move to action and you make sure that you do so from the right place. As soon as I told you about the Kakuma refugee girls, you just took action. Now, you are somebody I've been looking up to for a very long time because you really know what you're talking about when it comes to design. But let me ask you, I'm very sorry for your loss during COVID as well. How did you cope with the pandemic? Can you just share with the girls because they're listening to you right now? They may not know you've been going through some difficulties as well. Let me start with my family made it through the pandemic in incredible fashion. And I think that we were able to make it through. And I say, we're still going through it. I think that we're starting to figure out how to live with it. I don't know that anybody's figured all of that out. But during the pandemic, my mom and her spouse had caught COVID. They recovered from it. But lo and behold, my dad, who had suffered with diabetes, which is a chronic disease that he had been trying to maintain since his 40s, caught up with him during COVID. And we lost my dad in October. October is usually a very big celebratory month for us. One, it's his birthday. It's my daughter Leah's birthday, and it's my birthday. And right before my daughter's birthday, my father passed away. And the first thing that occurs to you when you lose a parent is the protection of your children. They've lost their grandparent, first and foremost, at least for me. You know, the mom and me went immediately to my children, incredibly close with their grandfather. He was a source of wisdom and inspiration and truth in our lives. You always knew where you stood with my dad. And he actually practiced law. He had since retired, but in his youth practiced law and was just a a constant source of, I would say, inspiration, but also stability. If there's one thing that in a world that is completely tumultuous all the time, you know that you can go to somebody who is completely stable. (laughs) That was my dad. And so as a family, just getting over it, you know, traveling, because, you know, death within COVID is unlike death before COVID. But our rituals for mourning the dead, right, and celebrating their lives have completely been upended. Um, And so, so much of that was trying to orchestrate as close to what our beliefs were in terms of enabling our family to feel and mourn that loss because feeling and mourning, it's so important that it is okay to be sad. It is okay to miss them. But in those moments and utilizing that time, it helps you to begin coming to terms with what it means to have someone not in your life who was a stable force in your life and who supported you no matter what. I share with the girls is that like all teenage girls, at some point we become rambunctious. I caused so much trouble for my parents during my teen years that you reflect back on it as an adult and you think, oh my God, and they still loved me after all of that. Just you talking about your dad, I feel that he's such a lovely, warm daddy that everyone wants to have, you know. So where did he grow up? 
So my dad grew up in San Antonio, Texas. He did not grow up with a means. I always think about, you know, growing up in the United States and that we as a society and the United States are incredibly privileged. But even within the privilege of being in the United States, my dad grew up very poor. He was one of five and grew up a man of the land. You know, he had a family ranch. Um, His family worked the land and his existence was both being kind of growing up with the land, being an outdoorsman and an education. His mom was a teacher. Oh, wow. And so he was raised by a single mom and the things that were important to them were their family really important, you know, one of five siblings, families, everything. And then the second most important thing was education. He was who instilled in all of us that all of the assets in the world mean nothing, right? Because they can go away, it's fleeting. But an education and knowledge is something that no one can take from you. When I look at you, I see you are a woman of integrity. You really go for it. You know what you're talking about. But did you do this when you were young as well? So I grew up, I am one of two sisters. Um, You know, my father and mother had two children. It was myself and my little sister, Erica. Um, We grew up also in San Antonio, Texas, a very middle-class existence in that. Both my mother and father worked very, very hard. Mom had, you know, a design studio and was an entrepreneur, but in a very heavily male-dominated field of architecture and construction. Whereas my father was an attorney and someone who was a learned man and really enjoyed reading and learning, truly a thirst for knowledge. So that combination and that groundswell, I would say I began my journey in this magical place called San Antonio, Texas. The city into itself is a magical space. And I'm going to tell you, it's a magical space for Latinos and Latinas in the Latinx community because it is majority minority. So I grew up thinking the world was Latinx. And it was really funny. And I will share this with the girls and the listeners, right? You grow up always wanting something sometimes you don't necessarily have. When I talk about the way that I look, people always say, is that what a Latina looks like? Well, the majority of Latinos, at least where I was growing up, came also from indigenous backgrounds. I did too, but the luck of the draw was that I had lighter skin than the majority of my family. And so I never understood what that privilege was, but I always flip it around. I always looked at my sister who had beautiful mocha colored skin and said, I want to look like that because my grandma looks like that. And my mom kind of looks like that. And I want to be like them. That to me was beautiful. So I grew up in this space that color was beautiful. And I grew up in this space understanding that you could be anything. The mayor of our city was Latinx. So when I talk about doctors, lawyers, professionals, you know, I had a mom who was a designer, a father who was an attorney, all these things. In my world, Latinos could be anything. And it wasn't until I left that bubble that I understood something that my grandmother used to tell me. I was very fortunate that um, not only did I have wonderful living parents, but I had a grandmother and a great-grandmother. We're very, very close. And they have indigenous roots in both from Mexico. So let me start with, we know that our families are from Mexico and we're in Mexico for roughly about 
250 years before having uh, immigrated to Mexico from Spain, sometime during the period of expulsions of Jews in Spain. But that being said, all the evolution is we were Mexican-American kids who were growing up in San Antonio, and I had the luxury of having five generations of women alive while I grew up. You know, it's so beautiful when you grow up as a young girl. I mean, I can see now why you are this empathetic and compassion. I mean, everything you do, you talk about empathy, compassion and kindness. And, you know, I was going to talk to you about, is it why you like diversity and equality and you talk about these kind of things? Because you live in fairness, right? I did. I lived in fairness that I thought, look, as a child, you don't know from not fairness. And I will tell you, it wasn't until I left the state of Texas on a trip to Chicago, which is where I really started my deep journey of education in design and media. But it wasn't until I left my Latinx bubble in San Antonio, Texas, this magical place that, you know, has fiesta and, you know, its celebration are so rich in the culture of what is San Antonio. But when I left, there was something that I reflected on, and I think it really impacted me and why inclusion and diversity is important. I grew up with light skin thinking that was a detriment. And my grandmother used to say, don't say that because they'll never see you coming. And I didn't understand what that meant. You know, this is a woman who, by the way, only spoke Spanish. I grew up in a multilingual household where my days and relationship with my elders and grandparents were in Spanish and my days with friends were in English and then my religious studies were in Hebrew. But that being said, I never understood what that meant. And so when we were leaving the state, my sister and I took a road trip and I will start with telling the girls, I was a very young mom. I had my children very young in my life, but wanted to still pursue my education. I was married to my husband, who I am still married to. And he was my high school sweetheart. Now, in that, I had always thought that my lightness made me an outsider. And what my grandmother used to tell me is like, no, you need to embrace it um, because you have a responsibility because of it. And I never understood it. As a young person, you don't. You leave the state of Texas. My sister and I, she has a darker complexion. She has beautiful mocha hair. It's curly And we were driving with my children, myself and her, on our way to Chicago. I was moving from Texas to Chicago to start the new adventure of educating myself. And we pulled over in a mid-sized city called Memphis, Tennessee, to gas up and use the restroom. And when we did, abundantly clear to me, I got to go in. I used the restroom, right? Came back to the car. She needed to sit with the girls in the back seat. My girls were babies at this point. And she goes in to use it. And then she comes back to the car and she says, hey, there's no restroom. I said, what do you mean there's no restroom? I just used it. We go back in together and I said, sir, my sister needs to use the restroom. And he looks at both of us and he says, ma'am, there's a restroom for you, but there's no restroom for her. Wow. And I went, whoa, two sisters from the same parents, right? From the same sociological place. And it was at that point, that was my aha moment of what my grandmother meant, is that people would never see me coming, meaning because of the color of my skin, and that I had an obligation to bring people like my sister 
along this journey. You know, my grandmother came to this country when she was three and lived in a rural area. As she grew older, the only work that was available to her opportunities was to become a housekeeper. And let me explain that you'd never found somebody more clean because when you are a housekeeper to wealthy people, her idea of wealth was cleanliness, meaning, oh, if you have a clean home, that means wealthy. All of these things being said, that is where I derive from. So I come from very humble beginnings. I come from women of color. And to me, I see my privilege as an opportunity to kick in those corporate doors, to kick in those things and bring people that looked like my grandmother and my sisters and the friends that I have always kept. Women of color are so key to, you know, who I am and bring them with me on this journey. I was going to ask you also this drive, this passion. Have you always been, you know, this kind of like really assertive person and driven? I have. That is a matriarchal thing that has been passed down to me by my mother. I have a mom who is just always on a mission and as a mom who was on a mission, not only professionally, but personally. And there are stories of my grandmothers being this way. I have great grandmothers on the Pena side who were just hustlers. As women of color, you have to operate outside the system because the system would accept them. And so What was clear to me is that I just assumed that I was going to be outside the system. I never understood that I was going to be accepted by the system because of the color of my skin. When that began happening, it became a moral obligation to me to use that privilege to further the work that we do, which is equity. It isn't just equality, it's equity. What does equity mean? A portion of it is understanding that we don't all start from the same place. The second important part of it is the economics of it. It's money and ownership, right? Ownership means agency. It's free will. And we know that the more money that you produce, the more free will that you can have and you can participate and you can grow generational wealth within your family. And the whole purpose of when I talk about equity is also that when we talk about science, art, technology, math, and design, is that there is a business component to every single one of those. And the business component for me in ownership and money is that to both have the skills that you need, right, to work and operate in a global marketplace, but to also compete is the part where Equity in a company, equity in the form of cash and money, equity in the form of might be stock. All of those things on the financial side are as important as the skills. So when we think about putting together programs, it is both about developing the skills for the craft of technology, engineering, arts, math, and design, but equally instilling the same business skills so that they can manage and have agency throughout that career path. One of the things I was reading about your work, and I remember the first time they sent to me your profile, I was like, oh my God. The lady said to me, she's the mama of design. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I was looking at the work you were doing. It was so amazing. But, you know, it's fascinating you talked about skills because us, we just going out there and get some jobs. But why do you think it's important to have, you know, inclusive design? And how do we get these people of color to be part of it? I've seen you been really elevating designers across the United States. I, I've seen that as well. So let me start with inclusive design for me. It is both strategic. We're sitting at this inflection point in the world. Um, we're amidst, you know, a fourth industrial revolution that's going through a global reset. You know, prior to the pandemic, we thought it was going to be one way, right? We thought it was going to be all automation, and it was that. That certainly is still taking hold. But what you are seeing the world do is reset. And in that reset, it's everything from retiring early and rethinking the values that you have placed on your career, but you're also this. Where design sits and design's opportunity is one to be a strategic force for bringing and orchestrating all of the right people at the table uh, and doing so in a way that brings disciplines together holistically in order to develop the most critical thinking skills at a time when the world is amidst an entanglement. You see, during the last industrial revolution, the world, we had an enlightenment. In this industrial revolution, and amidst this global reset, we are in an entanglement, which is the problems that are in front of us are incredibly complex. And there's no one silver bullet, right, that's going to fix them all. But where design has the opportunity to come in is actually to act as a systems designer, to identify the systemic problems, right? And then bring people who have not ultimately been invited to that table, to the table to one, formulate what the solutions are going to be and empower the many to actually take part in this. That's the opportunity of the reset and the opportunity of design to play a role in that reset. So as we think about the global reset, we not only have to be human-centered, we have to be earth-centered. In the past, we weren't always earth-centered. The designers of the past, field dominated by man, was very much human-centered. But humans weren't earth-centered. And so we have to bring those disciplines of being earth-centered and human-centered together in order to build resilience for the next hundred years. Oh, I agree. Totally. Oof. You know, if, they, if you think about deforestation, for example... They haven't been thinking about the earth at all, <laughs> you know, no thinking about cutting trees in Mozambique or in Senegal. Just, you know, all they thought about is this designing thing. Or even in Brazil, right? In the Amazon and Brazil. Essentially, what governments and business did together in these places was cut the lungs of the earth out, right? I mean, really, our ability to breathe, they have... In terms, I, I look at this in almost if the earth was a living entity, which it is, everything is connected to everything and it is synergistically works together. When we, when we do that, what we do is we open the earth's immune system to the disease of climate change, right? And we make it incredibly harder for humans to survive on this planet. You see that in Africa, to your point, 
you're seeing it in the Northern Triangle. The political thing that people don't talk about is that the reason for the majority of the migration from these places is because when we hurt the earth, we hurt the inhabitants of those places. And so we create drought, we create climate-based refugees that are looking for water, the natural resources that the earth used to provide. And so we have to stop and think about it as designers to say that design has the opportunity to shape public policy as well as technology. And we have to see those things come together. And that's the complexity of the ecosystem that we live in. Do you talk about this? Because you are such an influential person in the design industry, especially in the United States, and, and people knows you. But do you talk about it? Do you plant these seeds of humanity in the mind of businesses and, and people? I do. I do. And it's actually something that um, I have tried to instill in a new generation design apprentices across the globe. You know, I feel so incredibly fortunate to have, with the help of people like you, not just developed a board, but start to develop a network of apprentices from underrepresented communities. And what I have done is started to codify all of this belief, learning, and tools into systems of education. We have to make them available free of charge to people to use Because if we don't, if we put up barriers to this kind of thinking and to this knowledge, ultimately we will pay the price because the underrepresented people will not have access to the solutions and developing solutions in their communities. I look at the most important thing is not for designers to think that they can come in and impose a solution on a community, but for designers to empower communities and policymakers so that they can work together to create new systems, right? Or reinvent the systems that become detrimental. You know, before we talk about your foundation design code, I just love the work you are doing around that. You know, at I Am The Code, we are teaching young women and girls how to code. And I know you are a technologist. And then our goal is to give them the skills they need. And you've been very gracious and, and kind to actually give us content around design. But, you know, these young girls will be joining the global workforce. You know, eight years from now, our mission is to make sure they all get jobs. But when you think about it very carefully, you know, after the position you have right now globally as somebody really who knows what she's talking about. What are the skills you have as a woman in tech, as a woman of color, that the girls who are listening to you right now should really think about as they grow up? So I have skills in graphic design. I have skills in Python. I have skills in databases and data modeling. So my skills range from more traditional design to the technologist side of design. I have fundamentally believed that to be a good designer, you have to be able to control the canvas that you're creating on. And if tech is my canvas, then the importance of me being uh, able to code was uh, critical. It's actually one of the first design skills that I did was actually learning HTML. And on that side, I was actually self-taught. Um, but over time, you know, went and um, took everything from boot camps to courses and things like that, that would empower me. And let me tell you what that has done. Um, first of all, I've never stopped learning. 
that has been the key to in success, both in my career in the global marketplace um, and as a, you know, as a woman who carries the responsibility of, you know, raising a family, doing so in a way that my children are educated. And so, which is expensive in the United States, just, you know, start there. So, uh, so I explain it like this, is that if you're going to be a mama who needs to put bread on the table, but somebody who also wants to command the world, you need to have command of the command line. And so as a woman in tech, having command of the command line, while I may not be doing the everyday technology coding, I do have the capability of doing that. Um, and I do have skill sets in writing. You know, I think I'm a really good writer. I actually went to school for journalism. Let me start there because in my path, the things that came naturally to me, I was always taught if it comes naturally to you, maybe you should go learn something different so that you have broader skill sets, right? And so code and technology and all these things always came very naturally to me because I was constantly re-engineering uh, all of the technology in our home um, for good or for bad. It wasn't always good. My mom will tell you I broke way too many appliances. The flip side of that is that I always loved the technology of communications, both in television broadcast. So I went to school. It was just at a time when 1.0 of the internet was emerging. You know, I look now and had you asked me then, um, you know, what I needed to know, you know, what were the things I needed to know? Well, there were times when I went back and took a course in finance when I owned my own company so that I could do the financial management of that company. So for me, education wasn't just about obtaining a piece of paper or checking that box. It was about consistently obtaining the skills that I needed in an iterative fashion. I kind of talk about it as almost a product. If I was a product, we would be iterating all the time. The process of iteration to go from the things that you love and learning about art and art history and architecture, those influence my design. I'm always, you know, I'm influenced by the great Zaha Hadid. But the thing that I love about Zaha's work is that it brought the geometry of math, the science of like load bearing curves, right, and shapes, and brought the environment, the science and the art of the environment into these spectacular designs. So I look and say, you know, it's people like Zaha Hadid and my mom and, you know, all of these people who were always learning and they were always inventing. And invention in and of itself is a process of learning. You're never done learning. I knew you loved André Léon Talley, but you also have this fashion. You you dress so beautifully and I can see you put the beautiful glasses, the clothes, you know, when you do, when you do it, when you're doing your keynotes, I can see the process you actually take as a designer to be so present. And uh, when he died, I was thinking about you. I said, Oh, Joanna will be very sad. Oh my gosh, very much so. You know, well, let me start with, I did not know him. I knew many people around him. I met many of the women around him from Vogue. He, he was so influential and he influenced in such a subversive way. And it was so amazing to see him subvert the norms of the publishing world um, to bring about what it meant to be a black man from the South and pride around that um, and celebrate that. And you see it 
in every shoot that he ever orchestrated, anything he ever did. If if your viewers were ever looking for really understanding Andre uh, and the world of Vogue, there's a fantastic documentary that I would prescribe as homework for everyone to go see the September issue. It came out many, many years ago. You can find it on YouTube. It chronicles how all of the fashion designers in the fashion world came around what Vogue is today and how the September issue is put together. But Andrea is featured in there and so many of the women that have fundamentally defined what is fashionable. You know, there was something about him I see in you, which is the knowledge. You know, he, he was always praising himself of knowing what he's talking about. He knows fashion. And then when I when I think about you, you know design, you know what you're talking about. What do you think about young people right now who are, want to get into the tech industry? Do you have any advice you want to give them about learning, having the knowledge, the understanding of what they're talking about? Absolutely. So one of the things that I really encourage young people to do, which by the way, I love working with young people, is to do sense of exploration. But do not be afraid of trying to create your own business and your own technology and business model around it. That's how the likes of Jeff Bezos, that is how the likes of the founders of Google, that is the likes of Steve Jobs at Apple, they they took a chance on themselves and they envisioned the future. And while they weren't quite sure exactly how they were going to get there, they actually utilized processes that we use today and software, you know, that is agile and kind of dubbed those things as trying to get something to market. And I actually believe that we are ready for a new generation of inclusive leaders um, to do exactly the same. And so I am going to do everything in my world with my foundation uh, and the work that we do to ensure that we are equipping them with the skills and the funding they need to go start up their own, to have agency over the products that they create, to utilize both the visual arts and the natural sciences, to come up with solutions that the world is yearning for right now. Humans are yearning for resilience. I think we're still in a global state of mourning. And I think we are hyper-reactive right now in a way that poses an opportunity to young people to build new products and new systems of resilience for the rest of us to operate in. I'm glad you saw that because I can definitely see that in the eyes of the young girls. But let me come back to you. Like I said, you are one of the, somebody I really admire and love the work you do. But when you think about it very carefully, you have, you know, a beautiful family, children, and of course we lost our papa, but you know, you are here with us and we love you. You really work hard to push yourself to be here. What are you grateful for in the work you're doing? Oh, <laughs> the, the list is so long. Let me start with, I am so grateful for my friends and friends like you um, who inspire me to be better, um, to educate, equip, and incubate and inspire women and girls and their allies. That to me is what makes me skip into work every day. I am really grateful for the ability to gain knowledge and the love of iteratively learning. 
and the ability to bring that learning to other people, whether it's through a keynote or mentoring or being accessible to other women and other girls. And then I think really, truly, the 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 other thing that I am incredibly grateful is my health. Um, I think so often we take it for granted. And the ability to build human resilience begins with deeply understanding our health and what makes us healthy. And when we are both mentally and physically and systemically healthy, we can help others become that. And so over the last year, and while we've been on lockdown, I have so focused on being not just grateful for that health, but using that appreciation for it to build resilience, go on walks, take care of myself so that I can continue to take care of other people in the work that we do. Because ultimately designers are in service to people. And in order for you to be in service to people, right, and do as much good as you can in the time that you are here on this planet, right? My job is to plant the seeds that I may never get to see grow. Um, And in that, I am grateful for the ability that I have to actually make myself well and continue on that journey to being well and bring wellness to other people. And in complex times, we often forget that our individual wellness is often reflected of the wellness of our community and the wellness of the world at greater you are so right about that. And I'm really glad that I'm in line with you. One of the things I said to people that is if you don't have it, you can't give it because we are so in demand. We need people like you to guide us and to motivate the young women and the girls. You are a futurist in my view. You see things before. If you and I are sitting at the United Nations in 2030, you know, getting these young women with all the tools you're giving us, the content, the knowledge, the love, what will future of design means to you? The future of design to me is about bringing public service to the forefront, um, to bring civic duty to the forefront of creativity. And it is using that sense of public service to address complex ecological, economic, and social challenges across the globe. We can no longer merely look at ourselves as countries in isolation. We can't, it's not working. (laughs) Um, And we have to bring and make the world work for a hundred percent of humanity by building and designing and producing solutions that build resilience, human resilience, equally and equitably, both to men and women, right? And to whatever ethnic minority that you come from, that you have the opportunity to participate, which is not the case today. But if in 2030, we move the needle to ensure the health of our people and understand that it is linked to the health of our businesses and the health of our economies and to the health of the ecological place, I know that what we're doing is building resilience for the next hundred years. And that's the long view we have to take in 2030. Absolutely. I agree. What advice do you have for boys and girls listening to you right now? 
in a time that feels really complicated, don't stop dreaming big. There's a lot of cynical conversation going on in the world today. I am not cynical about the future. I refuse to be. To me, cynicism leads to inaction. And at a time when we just need people to act, I think that people will act in coordination and do so in elegant dance. It's not always about trying to control all of the action in a marketplace, but it is about understanding that the marketplace in and of itself has an elegant dance and we have to actually create a better dance floor for people to dance on. But I think listening and giving them the tools and the agency to to try something new and not just dream big, it's dream big and take the small steps that you need to start your own business, to start your own community. Would you mind telling the boys and the girls in our audience listening to you, how did you discover your purpose? I discovered my purpose at the knee of my great-grandmother Aurora. I would come crying to her and say, but the other kids are making fun of me because I have light skin or the other kids don't want to play with me because I'm speaking Spanish or I remember coming to her with those silly problems and she would tell me and she said just wait. They'll never see you coming. The people that matter will never see you coming and you are our secret weapon and that's how I found my purpose. I've got one more bonus question. Who do you think we should know in the design industry? You know what? Actually, I think that when we think about people that we should know, it's ourselves. I want them to Google themselves and and see themselves and begin to build their image of who they intend to be in the world. They have the power to do everything. Our job as you know designers and communities isn't to do the work for them it's to light those torches and to plant the seeds of the future so if i had any advice for the girls at the end of this season is that invest in yourselves take that investment and you know put yourself on that pedestal because the reality is you are the designer that we have been waiting for. My goodness, another milestone. You know what I am local we create milestones. That's what we do. And our milestones is every single year we try to reach something. Right now we have 30,000 girls into our program. Give us until 2030, 80 years to go, and we will see our girls coders. One of the thing I've learned this season I'm really sad it's ending but we're going to come back to it so don't worry. Is that knowledge is power. Demand more for yourself but be kind, be compassionate. Don't be greedy, don't take from people. Share, learn. When you learn something and someone give you something, give it back. Teach. As Maya Angelou said, when you learn, teach. When someone give you something, give it back paid for it don't just keep it for yourself the more people know about this podcast the better it will be for them do not give up when you are tired i know we are all tired right now with covid-19 and so much information but when you are tired take a rest do not give up go and have a nap sleep but do not give up on relationships Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up 
on dreams and hopes. It's so easy to give up, but please, don't give up. Small wins become big wins. You have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mja. What a day to finish season five with you. Like I said earlier, please don't forget to subscribe to the I Am The Code podcast. Kindly share it. Be a hero. Help us promote the podcast and spread the word to everyone who should have access to this. We are a very small team at I Am The Code, totally dedicated to making the world a better place by creating inspiring content for people who want to do better and be better. When you know better, you do better. Remember the 12 lessons for this year that I shared with you. Please check them out. Go back to it when you can and listen to them. Write it down. Apply it. You have time to discover who you are and yourself, but go for it. Don't give up. When you change your attitude in life, you change your altitude. Everything becomes so clear. You have new friends, new connections, new meaning in life. The invisible doors open for you. I want to wish you a lovely weekend and thank you again for being here for me, for the girls, for everyone. We are so grateful to have you as a friend, as a loyal listener. My sincere hope is this podcast will support you, will help you. If you have gained something from this podcast, season five, please give us a note. Send me an email or send me a DM on Instagram. Thank you again for being here. Have a lovely weekend. I'll see you on season six. I'm signing off. Have a lovely weekend.